This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I am so grateful you have joined us today. This is a podcast for parents or anybody helping raise kids. And my hope is that you leave these conversations feeling encouraged, loved, and supported. And we are throwing up a repeat episode today as I'm taking a couple weeks off this summer and also giving my awesome editor, Emma, a little bit of an editing breather as well. And so we pulled a couple of our favorite episodes from back in the day to air. And so if you're new here, you probably haven't even heard these yet. So this episode is with Rosalia Rivera. Rosalia has plans of action to help you protect your child from sexual abuse. She is passionate about helping adult child sex abuse survivors that are parents learn how to keep their kids safer with safety tools. And she explains so much in this episode It's very informative and helpful, and I'm just really honored to be able to air this episode again. So if you enjoy this episode, if you learned something from this episode, share it with your community, your people, let your friends know about this podcast. That's a huge help in us growing this show, and leave us a quick rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. I would very, very much appreciate it. All right, friends. Enjoy this rerun episode with Rosalia Rivera. Well, today on Why Is Everyone Yelling? I am so excited to have Rosalia Rivera on the show. Welcome to the show, Rosalia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you are doing so much important work in the world. And in all the conversations I've had on this podcast so far, As I've been researching this topic, this feels like the most important thing we could be talking about today. So thank you for all the work that you do. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, this is my passion. I'm really, you know, just excited to keep doing it every day and and helping people. So the work that Rosalia does is she helps empower children through consent education. Um, And what I want to bring to the listeners today is ways we can talk to our kids about body safety, boundaries, consent. And so let's get started to hear a little bit about your personal story and background as to why you became so passionate about teaching these things. Sure. So I'm a mother of three. I have three young self-identified boys between the ages of uh, now five and nine. Um, But my journey started when my oldest was five, so about four years ago now. Um, And it was because I uh, was going to put him into a uh, summer day camp. Uh, It was like a science camp just for the day, like a, a daytime one. And I realized the day that I was going to drop him off. I don't know why I didn't realize this before, but I started having a panic attack about the fact that I didn't know everyone there. And um, it really brought to light the fact that I hadn't prepared him for any kind of abuse prevention education or like understanding his body and his rights. And because I didn't know how to educate him, um, I was like just in this state of panic. And I didn't want to obviously go down that road. And 
prevent my child from having to do activities he wanted to do. So I started doing the work of educating myself. And it was at that point that I started realizing how triggering this information was for me because um, I had a lot of repressed memories about my own abuse. I hadn't really come to terms with that. I knew about my sisters, um, but I hadn't really like grappled with my own yet. And so as I started doing this work of educating myself and teaching my child and getting triggered, I realized that there wasn't anyone speaking to the survivor experience who, you know, parents who are survivors themselves and how to teach and break these cycles. And so I dedicated myself to my healing. I started uh, getting all the help and support that I needed to be able to do that. And through that journey, I realized like I wanted to help other parents be able to do this as well. Um, and, and through the process, I actually ended up finding out um, around that same time that my mother was also a survivor. And so it just drove this like passion in me to help others break these intergenerational cycles. And really all parents obviously need this information, but I felt like Nobody was speaking to that survivor experience. And so that's where I decided to create, um, you know, courses and programs and, and, mem and membership now to be able to help them um, and to empower all parents, you know, because they think these conversations are scary and they can be if we approach them the wrong way. But for me, it has to come from like, let's empower ourselves and, sh and change culture. Like we have the opportunity to change culture. And so that's what really drives me to do this work is to like help others reclaim that power and do something positive for the next generation. So we don't have another wave of me too. Yeah. You know, I love the conversation around empowering. Um, and I've heard you speak a lot on, um, you know, kids have ownership over their own bodies. We, as their parents, we do not own their bodies. We do not get to tell them all the things that they should be doing with their bodies. They should and shouldn't be doing. I do want to go there, but I want to hit on, um, you know, educating the parents who have been through sexual child abuse themselves and those moments that can be triggering when you're talking to your kids. When you teach on this, how do you communicate differently to a parent who hasn't been through the sexual child abuse compared to one that has? Because, you know, I, me I heard you mention one time reading a book to one of your children, and that was super triggering to you. So, mm -hmm. so how does a parent who has been through that navigate it differently than a parent who has not? Yeah. So it really has to start with forgiving yourself for a lot of things. Like a lot of times we put our, you know, put so much pressure on ourselves as parents, of course, to try to get it right. And if we don't, then, you know, we're like horrible parents, right? Mm -hmm. And we do this in all aspects. But when it comes to this particular topic, we already are carrying so much shame, which really doesn't belong to us. Mm. And so sometimes it's about having the support systems in place for someone to help you navigate this, right? And so it starts with having compassion for yourself, rel relinquishing shame, and looking for supports to help you do this education and to understand how to ground yourself when you are feeling triggered. So what are the strategies that you can start to implement that will help reduce the anxiety and the triggers? Um, so self-regulation, um, grounding strategies that really help you re realize, okay, I can do this. It's not as bad. And also managing, um, you know, particularly for women or those who identify as women who um, have cycles, like menstrual cycles, that they can actually work with their bodies mm. to teach this education at the right time of your cycle. So 
typically when we're at a, at a part of our cycle where we're feeling maybe low energy or more easily, um, you know, triggered by things, right? So it may be right before you're, um, you're about to start your cycle. That is definitely not the time to start teaching things that you know are potentially triggering. So it's just a matter of all of these different tools that you can add into your toolbox to help you navigate this information more easily and with more confidence so that you aren't passing along that like tense, scary, stressful energy to your child as you're teaching it and they're receiving it in a much more empowered way. Wow. Thank you. That was so awesome. Thank you so much for that. I love thinking about in anything in life, paying attention to where you are in your cycle. Mm-hmm. If, if you are a mother, if that's, if that's part of your life, because that is so true. It's like I get on this high horse sometimes like, oh, I want to teach my kids this right now. This is so important right now. But if you're not in the right place to teach it, regardless yeah. of your background, because of where your hormones are, what they're doing, then man, that can really, really change what that conversation ends up looking like. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. That's so good. Okay, let's just start with some basic first steps in educating our kids on body safety, boundaries, and consent. So I would love to talk about ages, when we get started, and what are just the very first steps? Yeah, so I mean, I am a proponent of starting from birth. And I know that sounds weird for Mm -hmm. people, but (laughs) you can really teach um, body awareness to your child from day one. Um, If you've gone past that stage you know, you can start as early as two when they're potty training is the age that I always recommend because um, they're at least starting to recognize the verbal language that you're using to communicate. Um, when they're younger than that, they're understanding your tone and intention, mm. um, picking up cues and things like that. But when they're a little bit older and they're starting to be more curious about their bodies, they're starting to gain a little more independence physically. These are great opportunities for us to start teaching about the terms of private parts, you know, using the correct anatomical language, um, and then starting to teach about the concept of safe versus unsafe touch. So that all happens between the ages of two to five, which is where I recommend getting started, you know, at the latest. But if you're past that stage, that doesn't mean you're you've missed the boat, like you can definitely continue. Um, But teaching those two basics at that early of an age as possible is really important so that kids understand what unsafe touch is and that they can start to recognize if something isn't right. The next thing to teach is about secrets and what the difference is between secrets, surprise sizes, privacy, those different terms, um, as they're starting to understand language and can speak, you know, themselves are starting to become verbal, then they can start to apply that, that idea of, you know, no secrets. So if somebody asks them to keep a secret, they can say we have a no secrets policy safety rule in our house, right? And that's a deterrent to potential predators, because when they hear that, they know that that child is being taught, you know, being proactive in their home. Um, so those are the, the first three things that are really important. And then as they get older, developing things like um, safety networks and safety passwords, like then you get into more pieces about exit strategies, like giving kids the tools of what to do if they find themselves in an unsafe situation and knowing how to report if something unsafe does happen, right? Because we don't want to just put it all on them either. If, if something does happen, it's not their responsibility to stop it, but that they at least know that they do have a recourse, right? They can speak up. 
their voice matters. They have a right to, to their body and they can speak up. So um, obviously, you know, having taught the concept of, of unsafe touch is also part of teaching about boundaries. So there's a lot of different pieces, um, but those are the main ones when they're really young and it keeps, you know, the conversation has to keep evolving. So I would say if you're between the ages of two and seven, um, those are critical years because those are the highest points where kids are likely to be abused is between those ages. Okay, so I'm curious if a child comes to you as the parent or you as the aunt or any any person who is in a relationship with this child and a child comes to you and shares information that they were un- inappropriately touched, what is the way you suggest we respond to that so that that child does not feel shame and they do feel comfortable coming back again and giving us this information? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And a lot of parents miss this piece, which is really critical to um, what happens after and and not re-traumatizing the child, like you said. So the first thing is to know that a lot of times it's incredibly difficult for a child to come forward. The statistics are that um, it takes usually up to five years for a child to report. So if they're coming to you with anything, it's probably not the full bit, you know, the whole chunk of information about what happened. They're testing to see how the adult is going to respond. And that's typically because a predator um, or an offender is someone that the child knows and typically has a relationship with. 90% of those cases are actually someone that the child and the family knows and trusts. So they're apprehensive about coming forward and they're just going to share a little bit of information. So how you respond to that little bit of information is going to determine whether the child continues to share what happened or completely recede and decide to go a different route, either to not you know, share and just deal with it themselves, um, which typically leads to an escalation, um, or maybe going elsewhere to tell someone else that they may feel safer with. So um, essentially, the first thing that we want to let our children know is that they were so brave for coming forward and speaking up, um, that it was absolutely not their fault. And they did the right thing by speaking up. Um, And then to let them know that you're going to do everything you can to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. A lot of times what parents, you know, especially if someone's a survivor, this may be extremely triggering. But also for those who are not survivors, you may also think that um, speaking in a really... um, overprotective way, like, oh my God, I'm going to make sure that that person goes to jail or I'm going to kill them. Like, I can't Mm -hmm. believe that that person did that can actually make the child really like go backwards, like, you know, take a back step and decide not to share more because they may still have a lot of affection for that person. Mm -hmm. It's a very confusing experience for them. Someone that they love and trust has now, you know, broken that trust. And so they're not really sure they don't want that person to necessarily get hurt. They just want that situation to stop, right? They want that person to stop doing what they're doing to them. So we have to make sure that we're not speaking negatively about the person that has Uh, you know, done something unsafe, we want to make sure that we're speaking to the child to say, we are going to keep you safe, we're going to make sure that that doesn't continue, um, without necessarily talking about what's going to happen to that person. And depending on the child's age, it's also helpful to let them know that you're going to continue to involve them in the process of what happens next, so that they don't feel out of control. It's something that, you know, when when you're in a situation as a child where there is so little control over a situation, it may create even more anxiety. And so we want to make sure that we're letting the child know 
um, you know, if they're old enough, maybe be, you know, six years and, and older, that you're going to uh, let them know what's going to happen so that they have a voice in, you know, what's going to happen next. So, um, you know, those are the ways that you want to respond is to reaffirm that they did the right thing. They're not at fault. Um, they were so courageous for coming forward and you're going to protect them and leave the questions, you know, because everybody's going to want to like say, well, what else happened? Mm -hmm. did, did they do this? Did they do that? Um, we want to leave open-ended questions, not leading questions. Mm -hmm. So not like, did they touch you here or did they touch you there? Just let the child um, open up as they as they feel like they need to and just ask curious questions that are not leading questions so that's what you know essentially is is the best way to deal with that and keep them in the loop of what's happening so that they feel like there isn't anything shameful there's nothing to you know that they didn't do anything wrong by including them in that ongoing process i'm curious since this is uh usually someone that the family knows or um, a family member, like you said, 90% of these cases, how do you then as as the parent remove that person from the child's life without the child feeling like, oh my gosh, you betrayed me because I told you, you know, like that's got to be the trickiest, one of the trickiest parts. Yeah. Well, what, what a parent can explain to a child is this person has done something that is not, they're not acting like a safe person, right? Mm, because safe person. <clears throat> yeah, excuse me. So if they're not acting like a safe person, that means that you know, your your job as a parent is to make sure that your child stays safe. And you can explain this to them. My job is to keep you safe and to make sure that, you know, you are um, staying healthy and nothing is preventing you from being able to enjoy your life and be happy, right? However you want to explain that. But when you say it from that point, you can say, so therefore, I have to make sure that for now that you have no contact with that person until we explain to them that what happened is wrong and, you know, see what it is that is the next step. You don't have to explain that, you know, you're going to report to law mm -hmm. or that you're going to, you know, contact the CSA um, or sorry, Child Protective Services. But you can explain to them that for the moment, you know, you have to make sure that they are not in contact with with that person because uh, they are obviously acting like an unsafe person. And an unsafe person is not someone that you want them to be hanging out with because they can potentially continue to do this. And your job is to prevent that. So um, it's not that they did anything wrong. It's not, you know, or that, you know, it's not that the child did anything wrong. Um, and so they shouldn't feel any guilt or shame about what happens. Um, as an adult, an adult has to understand what they did wrong and be responsible for that. And so you can just put it in terms that don't necessarily explain like, you know, this person's not going to be arrested or this person, you know, uh, is going to go to jail. But you can just say we have to remove this, uh, you know, contact for now until we clarify, you know, the situation and you did nothing wrong. You know, just keep reiterating that because we, we want to make sure that the child feels comfortable to share whatever other details are going to help that particular case. Mm. Um, so we want to reiterate to them that they are continuing to do the right thing and there's nothing wrong and they shouldn't feel shame for telling. Yeah. You mentioned safe persons and I would love to talk about the whole safety network idea and what that looks like and what the significance behind it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite tools um, that a lot of parents don't 
implement is a safety network, which is essentially um, a between three to five persons in your inner circle that you and your child have vetted as trustworthy, safe people. And you have to first explain to your child what a safe person is so that you can then create the safety network. And essentially, a safe person is someone who would never break a body boundary safety rule, um, who would never ask the child to keep a secret, um, who would always believe them if they came to them for help and who would do whatever they could to make sure that the child is safe. Um, so those four things are essentially what make up a safe person. And so now a child knows, well, if someone does the opposite of any of these things, then they're not a safe person, right? So anyone who breaks a body boundary or asks them to keep a secret. Um, and so when you're creating the safety network, you're explaining to the people that you're inviting into this network to say, this is what we're teaching our child. This is what a safe person is. This is what they understand that a safe person is. Would you be willing to be a part of this network? And um, essentially the reason why you want to create this is because many times a predator will get the child to keep a secret, particularly from the parents. Mm -hmm. And so if the child is really worried that, you know, if, if they've threatened them that, you know, if you say something, then your parents are going to get hurt or your sister's going to get hurt, um, then they will be really terrified to go to their, you know, even if you're, if, even if you've told your child, you can come to me for absolutely anything and you may believe that you've drilled this into them, right? They may still have an apprehension to come to you. And so if they don't have anyone else that they feel they can go to for help to figure out how do I, you know, deal with this and I can't go to mom, but I can't go to anyone else. I don't know who else to go to. Then they're trapped in a situation. Whereas a safety network allows the child to have a blueprint of how to access help outside of the parents so that they aren't trapped in the situation. It doesn't escalate and they can report to someone who can then help guide. So the, the other piece too that's really important is just like I explained before of how to respond to a child, someone on the safety network also needs to know those steps so that if your child goes to them, they know how to respond in an appropriate way that's not going to re-traumatize or, you know, hinder a case. Um, and so when you create these safety networks, what we're really doing is dismantling uh, the silence of culture, that is usually what's perpetuated, which is why we have a Me Too movement right now, right? Mm -hmm. This is really all about breaking silence. If we uh, create these systems for kids when they're young and they go off into the world later in life and something happens or they find themselves in a potentially unsafe situation, they are less likely to hold it in and not tell anyone and not report because we've been teaching them all along go get, you know, go to your safety people because you have a community and you have a support system and there's always going to be someone who believes you. Um, and so we'll, we'll prevent situations like, you know, harassment in the workplace that go unreported because no one's ever taught them how to access help. Yes. Life, lifelong lessons and mm -hmm. important information here for lifelong parts of our lives. Now, I want to talk about the consent letters and doctors because, you know, you, when your kids are really little, you go into the doctor's office with them. You see everything that happens. And particularly, my mind goes to, you know, Larry Nasser and the entire situation with the gymna USA Gymnastics. It's just so, so traumatic and sad that that yeah. happened to all those young people. Um, 
I would love to talk to you about how we talk to our kids about handling situations like this with doctors, trainers. You know, these so many kids at a very young age are on travel teams and they're spending a lot of times with coaches and things like that. So how are we communicating to our kids and then maybe share a little bit about your consent letters? Yeah. So by the way, have you seen um, Athlete A? Did you see the documentary? The only reason I haven't seen it is because I just felt like my heart wasn't in the right place to watch mm-hmm. it yet. I just, yeah. you know, I feel like it came out during the beginning of all the COVID crazy. And I just yeah. was wanting to fill my brain with like positive, lighthearted <laughs> stuff. But I do I want to watch it. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I was going to say, if if there are survivors out there, this can be a really triggering uh, documentary. So just trigger warning for that film. Um, but it is a really interesting look at, you know, like a lot of the parents who in this Larry Nasor case, for example, were in the room mm. when this was happening and they didn't under like they didn't know because they would they would be like sitting back reading a magazine mm-hmm. while the, you know, exam was happening and they just completely trusted. Right. And unfortunately, we just don't have that kind of luxury anymore. We never really had. But people who are in positions of authority, we just tend to say, oh, they must be good. Right. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. Um, just recently with the Boy Scouts of America, 92,000 uh, suits are being filed. Wow. And yeah. And so it is just shocking to a lot of parents because these are people that are in positions of authority in youth serving organizations or facilities that, you know, help kids, uh, you know, medical, et cetera. And they are, exactly where perpetrators want to hang out because this is where they can access kids. So um, the consent letters, I actually developed them based because of the Larry Nassar case. When it first came out, I realized that, you know, how can I empower my child to understand truly, not just at home, you know, that we're going to respect their body rights, but that everyone who ever comes in contact with them should respect their body rights. And so I ended up developing this first consent letter um, for doctor's offices. So it essentially says, like, when a doctor is going to uh, check you, you know, for an exam, they have to inform you of what they're going to do. So that entails what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, why they're doing it, and then ask you for permission, which is they're asking for consent. And then they have to wait to hear your yes or your no, right? And so that really gives kids this like, wow, I get to like outside of my home with anyone, I still get that say. And it also gives them the ability to practice that. So I created this consent letter for doctors. I give it to a doctor before we, uh, you know, come in for the exam. They learn about it. And this could be for a dentist. It could be for a specialist or an eye doctor. Like it doesn't matter who. Um, It really gives kids the tools to understand how someone should be interacting with them physically and that they always have the right to speak up and say no if they don't want that interaction. I know this can get really like gray area for people when they have little kids and they're like, what if I have to go for a vaccine? That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, again, there are some health and safety things that us as parents, right, we are in charge Mm -hmm. of when it comes to our kids. So it's just really about communication and letting them know there's going to be certain situations where I have to override okay. because of XYZ and and communicating that ahead with the with your child is going to help right so 
there's certain things, but explaining to them ahead of time, we're going to go to the doctor's office for this vaccine. This is probably how it's going to go. The doctor still has to go through this process and ask you, is it okay? But since we've discussed this, you know, you're going to say yes, because this is something that we have to do. Mm. If there's something um, that isn't necessarily a life or death situation or, or has to happen, practicing that with your child ahead of time and just to say, you know, you may not necessarily like this, but it's something that we should be doing. And the child will still have that ability to say yes or no in that situation. You have to determine if you're willing to let that go and reschedule the appointment or, you know, so going in ahead with a plan is going to be part of it. But aside from doctors, I also created these consent letters to really be tools of communication for anyone from a teacher, a babysitter, a family member, grandparents, right? Like grandparents are usually where a lot of people have friction because the grandparent will, you know, want to just go in for a hug or they mm. will maybe want to say like, Hey, let's go for ice cream. Don't tell your parents. It'll mm. be our little secret. And it's just an innocent thing, but letting the parents or the grandparents know, like we, we don't have that, you know, we're, we're doing a safety rule in our home, no secrets, good or bad and please respect it. And this is, you know, why, and here's the additional information of how we're, you know, teaching consent education in our home and, and asking them to be allies. You know, it's not necessarily about calling anyone out or pointing fingers or saying, you know, I don't trust you. It's really about saying, this is what we're doing in our home. And I want you to know, because I want you to be an ally. But if you don't want to respect these things, then that's going to be a problem, right? These are the boundaries that we have for our family. Um, so it's just these tools of communication that really educate the, the adults in our child's life, because we also have to be the advocates for our kids until they can self-advocate. And so we're also modeling this by teaching our kids, hey, we're going to give a consent letter to grandpa so that he knows that this is what we do in our home and he knows what our safety rules are. And you're communicating to all, you know, to every angle and everybody who's involved with your child's life. And it really um, is a red flag to potential mm -hmm. predators, right? But it's also a way for people to decide, okay, I'm going to be part of your safety team and help your child really learn these really essential, important life skills. Yeah, I love that it's a red flag to potential predators. Anything we can do to arm our kids for exactly. someone to say, oh, maybe not this kid. Yes, yes, yeah. please. Uh, I also love that you brought up the shot thing because that was on my notes. I was like, <laughs> what about vaccinations? Of course, they're going to say they don't want a vaccination. And how do you, you know, like still give them that ownership? But there is this balance of, I'm still the mom. I'm still the parent. Like, we're going to make these decisions because this is what we need to do to stay healthy. One piece of your education that I do love and I and I think is kind of a trend, more of a trend now these days, which is a great thing, is that we're giving our kids more opportunity to have full ownership over what they do, what they decide to, what they're interested in, what they wear, how they, you know, how they pursue their own activities and, and goals. And I think that's so important because in some ways there are people who just, you know, they dress their kids up in their perfect outfits and they say, this is what we do and this is how we do that. And it makes me nervous that it creates a culture of kids who 
are independent in their own right, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. There, there's various reasons why it's a healthy way to uh, give your children the skills for self-development. Um, one is, first of all, you're helping your child actually develop their own personality instead of us implementing mm-hmm. what we want for them. Um, you know, if you think about a lot of adults, you know, as they age, they're like trying to find themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's because a lot of times we've imprinted what we want for Mm -hmm. them to be instead of letting them develop their own, uh, you know, sense of self and really discovering themselves. So that's one reason. But the other reason when it comes to um, safety is consent is really the foundation for abuse prevention. And I talk about consent a lot because we have to match our words with our actions, you know, so we're always like, oh, your body belongs to you. You don't have to kiss anyone if you don't want to, but make sure you eat everything on your plate, Mm. (laughs) you know, and we're like completely contradicting, Um, you know, that may feel like a health and safety thing, right? When we're like, finish everything that's on your plate, but we're also negating to our child, like, I know your body better Mm -hmm. than you do and you aren't full. You know, even though your child's like, I'm full, I don't really, you know, sometimes we see like children are like, I am, I need to eat like every hour because they're going through a growth spurt, right? Mm -hmm. And their body is telling them like more food, please. Where other times where we think, okay, well, I've served all this food, they have to eat it Mm -hmm. and they may not want to. So we're, we're overriding what their body is telling them. And so we're contradicting this message of like, your body belongs to you, but like, most of the time, I still get to tell you. Mm-hmm. So we have to really think about where is really the health and safety. So I always tell parents, like, think about a typical day. Where, do, where, where are you overlaying your desires instead of the health and safety pieces, right? And then determine, like, what can you really give back as they're, you know, like re- returning that power back to them and also allowing them to start to become more independent so that they don't actually need others to help them when you're not there as much. I think it's always great for kids to be able to access help if they need it. But I think when we start to give them that power back, it's amazing to see how that transformation with them feeling empowered about their bodies instead of needing help for everything can really shift the way that they interact with others and really start to actually practice being able to say no, which is actually a skill. A Mm -hmm. lot of parents Mm -hmm. don't realize like allowing your child to say no and them vocalizing them is actually how you create embodied consent. Because if they've never been able to really do that, and every time they said no, you, you stomped on that, right? And you didn't really let them have that ability well, you're not letting them practice that autonomous development, right? And so that's a big part of um, abuse prevention because predators are looking for kids that are malleable, that are easy to manipulate, that are easy to dominate. And when we don't give our kids the ability to practice that embodied autonomy and embodied consent to vocalize it, to know what it sounds like, feels like, um, then they are much more susceptible to a predator Um, grooming them, right? And so we want to make sure that we're giving them as many tools and ability to practice those skills as possible, which is why consent culture in your home is so important. Wow, that's powerful. I love the idea of also letting go of our own desires for our kids, whether Mm -hmm. that's in very small ways, like, oh, I think he should finish his food to big ways like oh I wanted him to be a soccer player but he's not a soccer player or I wanted to when they're older oh I I thought he would maybe be 
a doctor or whatever. It's like we have to let go of what our inherent desires are for our kids to let them be who they are. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and it it's such an empowering experience. Like I said, I mean, for me, I was raised very like, you know, do as you're told and don't even ask questions. Um, and so for a very long period of time, I was like trying to figure out what I really liked and what I didn't like because I was always told what mm. to like or not like, right? So kind of coming back home to myself has been a journey. And I think if we allow kids to have those like to to explore the interests that they actually have versus the ones that we think they should have, um, that can really help them to develop a strong sense of self and ability to speak up because they realize that their desires, their voices, they matter, right? Not just what we want for them. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about talking to our kids about self-exploration and, and, touching body parts. And I'm not really sure I'm doing this the right way. So my kids are two, four, six, and eight. So I should be knowing by now what to do. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to say what I do and you can tell me your thoughts. And I, I'm totally fine with um, if you say, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, my, my kids are all boys and lots of hands in the pants, lots of touching the penis all the time. And when it's in front of other people or even I'm sitting there, I say that's something that we do in private. So I would love to hear what your thoughts are. And yeah, just go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that so loud and clear. I have three penis owners as well. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it doesn't, necessarily end at a certain age um either because you know as they're growing I thought oh okay like you know they'll stop um but it's it continues so um really as early as we can we explain the concept of privacy like you just said which was great that's something that you can do in private um sometimes it's about redirecting and saying you know maybe if you're if that's what you're interested in doing right now maybe in your bedroom or the bathroom would be a good idea but you know like let's not do that in public because like and particularly for my older child it's like i just want you to not develop this habit yeah. where you're like absent minded about it and you're doing it and you're at like a friend's house and suddenly it's like oh oh my god what am i doing yeah. right <laughs> so uh for my older child i've explained that right i've i've had to explain that a couple of times. And it's just um, because they're comfortable at home. So it's actually a really great uh, sign, you know, that they feel comfortable and safe in their environment. But we do have to keep reinforcing and, and reminding them of that. So redirecting to where they can do that is a good idea, too. So like in that moment, it might be like, that's totally cool if you want to do that, but you're going to have to go do that privately, right? And it And I always remind them to like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. by the way. You know, like I know that it feels good, but you have to remember that that's a private activity, right? Um, so using that kind of language is also helpful. And then for when they're younger, you just remind them, hey, those parts, I know that they feel good and that, you know, you want to be touching them. And that's totally cool because you're exploring your body and it's got, you know, so many functions and you can even tie it to like, you know, when you're learning about your nose and like, you know, Mm. sometimes you have a runny nose and sometimes, you know, it feels like you're going to sneeze and all of these different sensations. So you're just learning about your body and that's cool. But this particular part of your body is a private part. And so when you want to explore it or touch it or feel it, 
it's important that you do it privately and that you're not doing it with anyone else, that no one else is doing it with you, that no one's trying to do that to you. Um, you know, so you can kind of go through all those things. And these are these are conversations. It's not like one time you explain it and then they're going to remember. Um, so, you know, just kind of get used to the idea that this is going to happen. And this is the same for any gender. Mm-hmm. So whether they have a vulva or a penis, they, this is an activity that both genders, uh, all genders really um, will enjoy because they are, you know, there's like the most concentrated number of nerve endings in these areas. Mm-hmm. And so it's totally normal. And it's just a reminder to let them know it's totally okay, but you have to do this in a private way. So just explaining that and and making sure that they understand that um, is so important because I, I think a lot of people were shamed when they yes. did that and they were little and like carry that shame throughout their adulthood. So it's also important because um, we want to be body neutral and not shame any parts of their body, right? So developing a strong, healthy sense of your body as being a positive place is also actually um helpful when it comes to abuse prevention because predators again they will look for these signs of like where can I instill shame and use that you know manipulation to get them to keep a secret about something so that's also and and letting them know also that those parts are pleasurable is not going to create shame if someone does touch them and it does feel good but they realize like it's still inappropriate and they can speak up and say like you know this somebody touched me and it and it did feel good mm-hmm. but i know that it's wrong and they can still speak up instead of feeling shame about that was an unsafe touch but it felt good does that mean that i wanted it does that mean that it was okay like did i ask for it you know so it really can erase a lot of those doubts from a child's mind to know well that is a, a pleasurable place but they're still not supposed to have touched me yeah you know i have one one of my kids in particular is extra into it and he actually like we've caught him like taking a a, he's little he's little Mm -hmm. but like going to like trying to get another little cousin who is a female to like let's go play private parts and we have no idea where that came from um but we just are making sure that we continue to say this is something for for you not to right. do with anybody else. If, if you want to play private parts, that's got to be something that you're doing on your own. And and it's tricky and it's uncomfortable, you know? I mean, in that particular situation, I had to talk to my sister about it. And, you know, yeah. the kids are three. But, like, still, I have to be like, hey, just so you know, this happened. Yeah. And yeah. it feels icky, but... It's just something that I can't be alone in that. I can't be the only one who has a child who has yeah, done no, that. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. And, you know, just to put your mind at ease, it's actually really common for kids at that age um, to be curious with other kids' bodies, mm-hmm. right? Which is all the more reason why um, educating them using books as tools to reinforce these lessons, because sometimes we can have the conversation with them and it's great and we reiterate it and that's, you know, fine and important, but having some additional tools for them to see. So like there's really great videos on amaze.org, for example, that talk about these topics in age appropriate ways. There are like little cartoons that help explain the concept of privacy better. And, um, you know, that even 
explaining like these parts feel great, but they're for you. You know, mm. they're not for you to be like exploring with anybody else. Um, so having some backup reinforcement books, videos, um, and then, you know, what you did was great. You talked to your sister and you said, Hey, like, I just want to make sure you're aware of this so that we nip it in the bud and it doesn't happen anymore. Um, and being, um, again, non shameful to your child about it and just reminding them that, you know, these are, of course, things that feel good, but it's, it's a lot of times it's a self-soothing situation. Other times it's a curiosity mm -hmm. situation in, in whatever that situation is. It's just a matter of re reaffirming them, uh, you know, redirecting it. So if you want to play doctor, you can do it with your stuffies, you know, and, and like you can, you know, practice that making sure that your kids are, you know, that there's an open door policy when there's play dates and things like that are going to also help to reduce the possibility of that interaction happening. And, um, you know, just reminding them that you have to be sure that they stay safe. And, you know, I've had that situation with my kids who are siblings and, you know, they're, it's bath time and they're like playing around. And so, uh, particularly for survivors, like that can be triggering. Like it was triggering for me and I, I had to walk away and take a breath and like come back and remind them of what, you know, is appropriate and not. So, uh, you know, having a, a calm response when you're having these conversations is also really key so that they don't feel like, oh my God, I did something really bad. Um, and, and just reminding them of how they can proceed with that kind of uh, activity. Okay. And then lastly, I just want to cover the difference between being an overprotective parent and being a parent who is raising empowered kids. Because I, I kind of do picture like walking into the doctor's office with this like consent letter and I'm like, is the doctor going to judge me? And you know, all these, all these feelings pop up because you do want to like, you want to be calm, cool and collected, but your number one priority is keeping your kids safe. So how do we handle not being super overprotective, but also making sure that we're keeping our kids safe and we're empowering them? Yeah, yeah. So there's a difference between overprotective and proactive, mm. right? So I always remind parents like overprotective means not letting them go out in the world. Being proactive is educating your child on how to be safe going out in the world. And a lot of times, like in a situation like you mentioned with the doctor, um, we have to almost role play it in our mind and remind ourselves like why we're doing this, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes it's like if you have a, a friend or a partner who you can role play with and, you know, use that like, okay, what if they respond this way? What would my response be? You know, and these letters, by the way, they are really inclusive. They're not like being super like wag your finger, judgy, don't touch my child. Mm -hmm. It's really like, hey, this is a really cool like, you know, practice that we're doing at home. Um, we really and it says in the letter, we really want you to be part of our team. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to call you into this. Um, for me, my experience was both um, that the the doctor thought it was really cool and actually said, you know what, there's times where like I go in and tickle a kid and you're so right. Mm. Like that's not something that I probably should be doing. And he yeah. was kind of like joking about it, um, realizing like, crap, yeah. <laughs> I, I shouldn't be doing that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so maybe now he's being more conscientious about it with other kids too, right? So um, we tend to have these like doomsday scenarios in our head, but actually people tend to respond really positively, especially the people who want to make sure kids are staying safe, right? And those are the people that you are going to respond positively. Most of the time, 
they're going to say, oh, that's super cool. Like, I never thought of that. That's such a great way to, you know, communicate about this. And that's super cool that you're teaching that to your child. Someone who may not necessarily be a safe person to your child may resist and say, like, I don't, you know, that's kind of overboard, don't you think? And you can just very kindly say, some people might think so. I don't think so. And, you know, I think that we're actually helping our child stay safe. So, you know, if you don't feel like that's something that you want to help us practice, duly noted, you know, and yeah. now you know that that person is not someone you would necessarily want to leave your child alone with. Right. Um, so it, it's really a learning thing. And you can just learn to practice your boundaries with a friend or a spouse so that you feel more confident when you get, you know, any kind of negative feedback. And you can just like reiterate to them, you know, that's that's totally fine if that's your opinion, but this is how we're going to proceed with our family. You have to remember that, you know, your biggest priority is your child's safety and that trumps everything. Yes. So, yeah. How do you feel about doctors having that conversation with kids as part of routine things like, hey, make if a doctor brings up that people shouldn't be touching their private parts? What do you mean exactly? Like if the doctor is the one saying... Well, I, f- I think... Not one of my doc- kids' doctors, but I, I think I've heard one of my friends say that their doctor, their pediatrician, has had that conversation with their kids about those boundaries and making sure that nobody touches their private parts. Is that a conversation doctors need to be talking to kids about, or is that strictly a conversation that you need to say, oh, that's something we talk about in the home? It really depends on your level of comfort with that conversation being had outside of the home. Um, I think that it's important, obviously, that parents have it. um, But I wish that other people would talk about that more openly Mm -hmm. because then kids are hearing, oh, like everybody believes that this is the right way. You know, nobody should be touching private parts. Um, I think, you know, when there is a suspicion of abuse, like if there are any physical signs in the genital area for a child where a parent is suspicious, one of the first things is to go to a pediatrician. So they are um, equipped to a degree Mm -hmm. with understanding this and and knowing what signs to look for and things like that. So, um, you know, if, if it's a family doctor that you feel trustworthy about and you've had that conversation, I think that the doctor should be having that conversation with the parent first yeah. to say, is this something that you're okay with me addressing? Um, and so that's something that really the doctor should be speaking to the parent about first, confirming that it's okay, much like in a school setting, right? Like, do you want your child to get this abuse prevention education at school? The the parents should have some kind of say. I personally think that all schools should be giving mm-hmm. abuse prevention education, but I know some schools want to make sure that the parents are on board first. Um, So I think it's similar, you know, they should be communicating with the parent and then determining if, if it's okay to proceed with that or not. Okay. Um, Okay, everybody, Rosalie is available for consultations. You can, you can book a consultation with her if you have any specific questions to your own life. Um, What's your website again? consentparenting.com.com. We're going to wrap up with some end of the podcast questions. She also has lots of courses great information over there on her website. What, Rosalie, is something with your business or life in general, what's a goal that you have that you're still hoping to accomplish? 
So many. <laughs> so many. Um, I'm actually in the process of um, starting a children's book. Oh, cool. um, so that's really one of my biggest goals right now. And I would love to leave that legacy of uh, tools. You know, there's specifically on the topic of secrets. I haven't found many books that really address this in a concrete way because there's so many potential scenarios. Um, so I would love to create a series of books for kids about the secrets and safety uh, conversation so that they can really understand it. So that's a big goal. I love that. What What are some books right now for kids that you have read that you would encourage parents to read to their kids on this topic? <laughs> Yeah, on the topic of secrets, one of my favorites, um, but there is a bit of a trigger warning uh, for survivors, um, but it's called uh, Some Secrets Should Never Be Kept by Janine Sanders. Um, she really like has this perfect way of explaining um, both the concepts of safe versus unsafe touch in within that storyline. Um, and it is created as a story, so it's not just like sort of a, a lesson kind of book. It really is built into a story that kids get really wrapped into and understand like, you know, the struggle that this child feels um, when they were touched unsafely and then told to keep a secret and like the struggle that they went through and finally being able to tell and how it was, a you know, a, obviously a positive ending because that no longer happened. So, but it can also still be a little bit triggering for survivors. So there's actually a video um, that I also recommend. You can find it on YouTube of an author, different author who's actually an actress, I think, in Australia, reading the story. So if a survivor can't read it mm -hmm. to their child, they can just watch the video with the, with their child. Um, it's a really powerful book, one of my top recommended ones. And there's many other great books um, on different topics, but I still haven't found one that like really explains the difference between secrets surprises and privacy in a way that kids will like really understand without it being confusing. So, wow, that sounds really good. I listened to your interview on your podcast with her, with the author. Mm -hmm. What about a book for kids that are, you know, like three, four, whatever the ages where you really want to start talking about body parts and consent and, um, are there any good starting place books? Yeah, there's one that's really great. It's a board book called C is for Consent. Mm. That's a great book for like two and up. Um, other books are Amazing You is a really great book for um, talking about private parts and explaining, um, you know, obviously that they're private, but also like showing what they are, right? So mm -hmm. it, it's a good book for that. Um, just thinking there's a, also It's Not the Stork is another great book. Mm. Um, so, so those are the, the top three. There's also, um, you know, when it, when it comes to consent and another two of my favorites are, um, a hug. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of that author, but if, if anyone wants any of these, um, recommendations, I do have a free PDF people can download for that. Um, but another really great one that's recently, uh, been added is called, um, do you want to, uh, can I have a squish? Can I have a squish? I think it's called mm. um, by Emily Nielsen. I think it's her name. And that's a really great one to teach about um, not just like about boundaries and consent, but also about learning body language cues and facial cues and understanding that, you know, people do like affection, but maybe in a different way. So how to communicate and ask for it. Um, so that was recently added to my book list as well. So yeah, there's there's some great ones, but in terms of particularly like private parts for little kids, Amazing You is a is a really good one. Yeah, it's time that we moved away from the um, go give Aunt so and so a hug, go give everybody a hug. 
maybe your child doesn't want to give everybody a hug. Would yeah. you would you like to give grandma a hug? You know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and being okay with, you know, the adult also being okay with the no. And yeah. the child understanding that if they're upset about a no, that's you know, an adult is an adult and they can like manage their emotions yes. around that, you know, so. Yes, 100%. What about adult books? Just in general, off topic, what's the best, most recent book you've read? Uh, I'm always reading like two or three books at a time at least. <laughs> so um, one that I think is really, um, I keep kind of going back to um is one that's uh, particularly called uh, Parenting with PTSD mm. um, because I'm always working with survivor parents. And uh, it's a collection of stories from different survivors and their parenting journeys. Um, but that, I think, is a really powerful book for a lot of survivors because it helps them relate and realize they're not alone in that in that journey. And, and all the fears that come with it, I think, are very unique. Um, but that can help you really understand that there is support out there and you're not the only one experiencing that. Um, so I, I really love that book. And um, the other ones are not so, you know, not, not ones that I necessarily recommend people to read, but there's one called uh, Conversations with a Pedophile that I'm currently reading um, with a doctor who, or she's a, a music, music therapist and um, ended up interviewing this um, convicted pedophile over a course of 10 years, like, wow working with him to um, understand really like what he, why he did what he did and gleaned so much valuable information that can really help parents to understand what to do to counter the strategies and tactics that predators use. But um, again, not necessarily something that I'm like, Hey, go check it yeah, out. Yeah. You're um, particularly if you're a trauma survivor, like that can be a really heavy book, but um, yeah. So I, you know, I'm always reading stuff like that. So Yeah. Okay, Rosalia, what is your last message you want to leave the audience with, with mm. anything that we've talked about today? Any, any messaging that you have with your business and life? Yeah, so I think the best strategy for abuse prevention is developing a strong connection with your child and, and making sure that you're developing a trusty, trusting and trustworthy relationship that your child can feel like they can come to you for anything. That's really at the heart of all of it, you know? And so we develop trust by allowing our child to uh, be themselves and to know that you are going to always be there to support them no matter what, because you unconditionally love them, you know? And I know that as parents, we're like, of course I, you know, I'm doing that. But um, I think as we develop in our parenting journey, like, we are actually reparenting ourselves and kind of healing from our own stuff. And so that's probably the biggest thing that you can do for your own child is step into your own healing, whether you've had, you know, sexual trauma or not. I think we all come, you know, with battle wounds and we are just better parents when we take care of ourselves and our healing. So I would just remind everyone that you have the ability to reclaim that power to heal and to grow. And you're going to, you know, model that growth to your children, um, you know, sort of unconsciously, right? Like they're just going to realize that you're continuing to grow as a person. And so, you know, just letting everyone know that you have that ability and to keep going forward. 
All right. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Rosalia, for coming on the show. We appreciate your work so very much. You can learn more about Rosalia on Instagram. She is Consent Parenting. You can connect with us. Why is everyone yelling over on Instagram? I'm personally LindsayHine626. I'd love to connect with you there. And you can learn more about this podcast and our network at sandyboyproductions.com. Thanks for being here and we'll see you next week on Why Is Everyone Yelling?